This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Carl Ulrich. Welcome to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm the Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and I teach entrepreneurship innovation as well as product design at Wharton. I co-host Launchpad with Rob Connybeer, and Rob is a managing director and co-founder of Shasta Ventures, a leading Silicon Valley venture capital firm. And Rob and I switch off hosting duties on the show. We usually broadcast from the Wharton School campus in San Francisco, but today I'm lucky enough to be in Philadelphia on a beautiful spring day, and it's always great to be at the, the mothership. The idea behind Launchpad is that we, Rob and I both are are sure, like most of you, that entrepreneurship is fraught with risk and uncertainty, but we do believe that there are things you can do to increase your chances of success as an entrepreneur. And so what we do is we bring on the show typically three or four entrepreneurs to do long-form interviews to get into the details of what they're doing in their venture and to understand the challenges they're facing and how they're overcoming those challenges. And then Rob and I look for opportunities to underscore tools, principles, and methods that we can share with our listeners. So that's the basic approach and and format. There are really three types of listeners. Some of you are yourselves entrepreneurs, and I know you're out there. You send me email. You're loyal followers, and we hope to speak directly to you. Uh, Some of you are thinking you might want to be entrepreneurs, and so one of the things we like to do is give you a realistic view into the world of entrepreneurship. And probably most of you out there are just interested in what's new in the world of business, and we hope to speak to you as well. So our plan for today, we got a great show coming up. Uh, I'm going to talk to Phil Valtero, who's the founder and CEO of Fuelster Technologies, an on-demand fuel delivery system designed to help users refill their vehicles on the go. Then I'll be joined by Alan Frost, who's the founder and CEO of Flava Naturals, a health-focused chocolate brand. But to start off the show, I'm joined on the line by Serge Saxonoff, who is the founder and CEO of 10X Genomics. Serge, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Really excited. All right. So first things first, let's just make sure our listeners know where to to look up your website and so forth. So it's 10X Genomics, and that's the numeral 10. So 10xgenomics.com. If you're someplace safe and in a web browser, you can take a look at 10x Genomics, learn a little bit more as we're talking. All right, Serge, I'd like to start with the elevator pitch. So give us the elevator pitch for 10x Genomics. So the idea, uh, the first concept that we should understand is uh, just how little biology we, the world, really understands. And uh, we have huge opportunities in front of us. I mean, like the world coming in the coming decades in terms of addressing diseases, curing cancer, doing all kinds of wonderful things. But the biggest challenge is understanding biology much better than we do. And our goal at 10X is to build tools, technologies to accelerate the understanding of biology, to give uh, scientists the tools they need uh, to understand biology and ultimately to find new cures and um, and address uh, and improve health. All right. Well, that's no small goal. And indeed, you're speaking to someone who feels like he doesn't understand biology very well. So maybe what we could do to start is get into some of the biology. So maybe you could focus in on some particular area that 10X looks at and how it is that you help your customers understand biology. Yeah, so we've released multiple products over the last several years. Uh, one of the biggest um, product lines that we have uh, is uh, focused around single-cell biology and specifically, uh, to be more specific, single-cell gene expression. And the idea is that all of us are made of cells. Every Like every human, a human body has 40 trillion cells in it. And uh, all those cells are meant to express different genes, um, and they interact in all kinds of various myriad ways. And up until recently, we have not had the means of really measuring what's going on in those cells. 
um, in any uh, in sort of the individualized manner. The way that people have done it is by taking the uh, your sample, whether it's tissue or sample of blood, and mixing, kind of breaking cells open and mixing the contents together, and then measuring the average of those cells, kind of like making a smoothie. So with our products, and uh, we've uh, kind of the first product in the series came out back in 2016, we allow you to take your sample, separate individual cells in their own kind of reactions, and get across thousands to hundreds of thousands to millions of cells and measure all of them individually, get a full uh, what's called gene expression profile for each cell. Now, that allows you to understand, uh, to see all kinds of fundamental things about sort of how all the different sort of organs are composed of your, of your body, how the different tissues uh, work. Um, and that in itself then drives much better understanding or provides the basis for understanding all kinds of diseases, uh, whether it's cancer, whether it's of inherited diseases, disease of old age, and allows you to start thinking about how to target um, therapies to particular cells in the particular conditions. All right. Well, let's let's drill down even further. What would be a category of cell that would give us a good example? Would it be a muscle cell or a blood cell? Or give us an example of a type of cell that where we might be able to perform this analysis? Uh, so the the actual the analysis can be performed uh, just about in any area of biology because you know the cell is the fundamental unit of mm-hmm. biology. So what we've seen is that our uh, you know our technology has been used in all different kinds of areas of bio uh, across biology in many different areas of study. So whether it's studying blood or lung or um, you know, neuroscience, neural tissue, uh, there's a great uh, publication that uh, that came up in August uh, where the researchers mapped out the cellular architecture of uh, of, of the lung in, um, in humans and in mice and discovered a new previously unexpected type of cell um, and um, they just didn't know this is like a rare cell that no one knew existed and um, that in itself is just very interesting but then it turned out furthermore that that's the cell that expresses the gene responsible for cystic fibrosis which is this uh, really prevalent, prevalent inherited disease um, that's, um, uh, that people have been searching for a cure for a long time. And so this finding totally changes how we think about this disease because previously we thought that that gene was expressed kind of more generically throughout the entire lung and uh, gives uh, kind of new directions to how we should go about trying to treat it because there's a very specific cell that expresses that particular gene that needs to be addressed. All right, so let's drill down even further on that example, and I'm getting a great biology lesson here. So what you're saying, as I understand it, is the lung itself is comprised of several different kinds of lung tissue cells, and and that those cells, although they all, every cell presumably shares the same genetic code, uh, mm-hmm. um, there are different types of cells, and the particular expression of that DNA or that genetic information could be different by cell. And what your technology lets researchers do is actually measure that at the cellular level. Did I get that roughly right? That's precisely right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. We all have the same genetic material, but very different programs that get expressed uh, on top of the genetic material. And that's, that's really what drives biology. All right. So conventionally, as you say, they they might have taken lung tissue and maybe done some kind of macro sorting of, okay, I'm looking at a particular section of the lung, make a smoothie out of it, and then mm-hmm. measure some aggregate properties of the DNA in, or I don't know what you measure in, in the smoothie. Tell us how mm-hmm. your system works differently. So what happens is that you take, um, you take that tissue, you're, separate out individual cells, and there's different protocols for different tissues of how you do that. And you end up having uh, what's called a suspension, uh, so a kind of liquid with cells suspended in it. Then you put those, that suspension into, uh, into a chip, into a cartridge that goes into an instrument that we sell. We also sell that cartridge. Mm-hmm. And within the cartridge, within the instrument, when people run it, what happens is that every cell gets separated into each own droplet, and within each droplet are... Uh, each droplet then contains reagents for running kind of a complex set of biochemical reactions on that cell. 
and also unique barcodes that are specific to that droplet, which end up being specific to that cell. Those barcodes are synthetic DNA molecules. And so when you're running these biochemical reactions within each droplet, you incorporate that synthetic DNA barcode in the results of each reaction. Okay. That, mm-hmm. Go ahead. That once you run, and so the idea here is that you essentially you're able, and that's one of the core features of the system, is that you can run reactions in parallel across thousands or tens of thousands of reactions in a single go, each with its own barcode. Then the output of that can be put on a DNA sequencer that produces. Uh, kind of a, a very long list of uh, what are called reads, basically essentially strings, which correspond, each string corresponds to an expression of a particular gene, RNA molecule, uh, containing uh, also embedded within it is the barcode information, which tells you which droplet that particular uh, string came from, which corresponds to a, a molecule of RNA. Um, and uh, that allows you to reconstruct the full gene expression program for um, for each cell that you have put into your uh, cartridge on in this sort of a parallel, massively parallel fashion. All right. So let me play that back to you um, as a mechanical engineer. So so you've got these droplets. They each have a cell in them. And, and that cell has some, let's just think of it as a string of DNA in it. And what you're able to do is to essentially attach a little tag to that DNA that says, I came from cell A321. Um, And then you can scramble everything, do an aggregate analysis, but be able to extract information associated with that specific cell A321 that you previously tagged. Did I get that roughly right? You got that right. Okay. The the one thing I would add to that is that uh, there's different products that we have for measuring DNA. Mm-hmm. The more, uh, you know, in some sense, the more important molecule is what's called RNA, which corresponds to the program of gene expression, the DNA codes for RNA. And um, it is particularly important to be able to measure RNA because that corresponds to which parts of which genes are actually being expressed. Right. So the DNA is the master code. The RNA is what it produces or uh, creates in any specific cell. And that's the so-called expression of the gene expression. Is that right? That's exactly right. Okay. Got it. Wow. All right. This is deep stuff. So... uh, so let's let's go back to this lung example and cystic fibrosis. So you were able to somehow I, I'm, I'm I I get how you could get well I don't really get how you could get a cell in, a, in an individual droplet but I get this conceptually uh, but I don't really understand how I would use this to discover a new type of cell. Yes. Uh, so what happens, and I, I would like to emphasize that it wasn't us who discovered it. It was us. Yeah, right. You, they were using your tool, though, right? Right. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So what happens is you make, you take a sample of of the lung, mm-hmm. and maybe you take several samples. You convert mm-hmm. those into cell suspensions, and you run those through our, uh, through our system. And then you get data back. And now you get data back across hundreds of thousands of cells, and for each cell, you have measurements across, you know, the human genome contains about 20,000 genes. And now for each gene, you have a measurement. How much of that gene was expressed in that particular cell across hundreds of thousands of cells? Now, that allows you that for each cell, so that you have this really rich set of information that allows you to now classify cells, Ah. cluster them. Right, uh, and these clusters correspond to cell uh, types, mm-hmm. to some extent, cell states, because different types of cells can behave differently depending on where they are and mm-hmm. the conditions they're exposed to. And this clustering, then, uh, naturally, and it's, and it's been really fascinating to see just over the last several years, because we've known about some types of cells from just you know sort of the hundred years of cell biology. And when you run it through our system, this is a totally different way of looking at things than people had looked at in the past. Mm. Some of those clusters turn out to correspond to cell types that we've known for a long time. And some, just like in this experiment, they pop out as something new. 
Yeah. So I get, so I, I'm, I, this is really fascinating. So it's easy to, to imagine how I might distinguish between a muscle cell and a blood cell. They're going to express the RNA associated with a muscle cell is going to be um, associated with very different genes, presumably, than from a blood cell. And so if I were to look at which genes were expressed in a muscle cell versus which genes were expressed in a blood cell, I would see some of them light up in one and not in the other. And what you're saying is that even within, say, lung tissue cells, there are subtle differences in which genes get expressed and that what you discovered or what these researchers using your tool discovered was that there was a heretofore unidentified type of lung cell. Uh, and that was revealed by which genes light up, lit up when they were when they used your tool to analyze them. Did I get that right? That's that's right. Yes. Um, that's, yeah. These these patterns turn out to be fairly complicated. Yep. Because uh, groups of genes, these are programs of genes that get expressed, uh, turned on and off. Yeah. All right. Well, this is that's I, I'm pretty sure that's as much as much of the biology as I'm going to understand. But uh, and it's 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 fascinating and amazing. And it makes me wonder. I mean, there it sounds like there are hundreds of moving pieces in terms of I mean, that figuratively hundreds of different technologies that have had to come together in order to be able to do this, the ability to separate cells, the ability to tag the cells to be able to measure the where did this stuff come from? Um, so a lot of it, uh, yeah, there's a lot of technology here, and quite a bit of it we invented in-house. We had an initial vision of this application, this idea that we, the world needed this kind of information, and uh, we had to invent uh, a lot of the different pieces uh, to, to make it work. Now, of course, there's a lot, also a lot of technology that's, that exists out there in the world, like DNA sequencing, which was uh, which is really powerful and uh, and is part of our workflow. Okay, well, this is uh, this is just one of several product lines you have now. But for this one, uh, mm-hmm. tell us a little bit what what the actual device looks like. Is this a room sized laboratory? Is it a little box? Is it on an app? What is it? How, what does it actually look like? Yeah. Yeah, it's actually a, a pretty uh, uh, <laughs> a pretty sleek uh, kind of box instrument itself. Kind of looks uh, like to think of it like an espresso machine, maybe roughly the size. Uh, fairly compact, uh, and, and you know we like our kind of goal is to make this kind of technology, make these products available as widely as possible, which means a room sized uh, <laughs> uh, kind of contraption doesn't quite fit that. Um, so the yeah, so the the instrument itself is uh, is fairly uh, small. It's um, you can go on a benchtop in just about any lab, mm-hmm. and um, and then we sell as I said consumables, cartridges to go along with it, also similar to an espresso machine, um, in a similar business model in a sense. And what goes what goes in uh, to the machine? Do you put the tissue, or do you? Is there some preparation system that creates the little slides or cartridges before it goes into the machine? So the cartridges, so we supply the cartridges, and we supply uh, kind of chemicals and reagents mm-hmm. that together the customer puts into the cartridges. And then the customer is also uh, would put a sample the cell suspension, like I talked about. Now, um, the cell suspension, the way to get to that point from the tissue, there's a lot of different ways to do this, and it depends on the tissues, and there's a lot of those kinds of protocols have been worked out previously for various um, reasons. Um, and that's that. Sort of like that. The cells is what the customer supplies, and we supply everything else. Got it. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Carl Ulrich, and I'm speaking with Serge Serge Soxenoff, who's the founder and CEO of 10x Genomics. Um, Serge, what's the? Uh, what do I pay for this for this magic espresso machine? <laughs> <laughs> so the machine itself, uh, the list price is seventy five thousand dollars. Uh huh. And then in order to run um, actual samples, analyze them on this machine, it's, it costs roughly, from us, it costs about $1,000 uh, per sample. And different products are kind of cost different amounts. 
And uh, there's also additional costs associated with sequencing or uh, uh, some of the other reagents. But that's about uh, that's how the economics work out. And and so, wow, a thousand dollars a sample. So the consumables are a big deal for you. And what would be the typical throughput of a lab operating this machine? Would they be running a sample a week or a sample a day or multiple samples a day? What what kind of volume would they use one of these machines for? Uh, I would say a few samples a week is uh-huh. pretty good um, for a target. And, it's, you know, there's a fair amount of variance. Some labs are especially kind of our earliest customers that tend to be further along the curve and they tend to use it a lot more. And new people, as they're kind of ramping up on applications and such, tend to use it a bit less. Um, but sort of everyone seems to be on the upper trajectory using it more and more. Yeah, so this is a classic razor and blade model in some ways. And it looks, if I just do the math right, it looks like the 75000 probably gets ignored pretty quickly relative to the cost of running the machine. So that's, of course, a beautiful model for, for you guys um, because it it allows, well, for obvious reasons. I mean, it's a razor mm-hmm. blade model. Um, so So let's talk about the business a little bit because I would have... You, what you were basically doing, this is sort of a a gold rush story in which you're not mining for gold, you're selling the picks and shovels, basically. And it's pretty interesting. So I, I, I wonder how you thought about this trade-off between building tools to, to sell to researchers uh, versus actually going after some of the diseases directly. Yeah, and that's, a, that's a, like a key question, uh, something we think about uh, a fair amount. So a, a few different uh, kind of thoughts on this. One is, um, yeah, first of all, the picks and shovels, I think it's, it's the right analogy. It's a little more than that because we're the ones in many ways that are enabling the, the new gold rush. Uh, without kind of You're making the gold stuff. too. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, so what drives me, I think what drives a lot of us here is impact, fundamentally making positive impact in the world uh, and kind of driving science forward. That's kind of what I said at the very beginning of the, uh, of the podcast. And our view is that the greatest scale can be achieved by building products. And placing them as many places in the world as possible. That's kind of that's where you have the greatest leverage and uh, can have the greatest impact, but fastest. Um, so, and I think there's a lot of um, there, there's a lot of there's a lot to be said for the business for the business model. Now you can see how fast uh, we've been ramping since getting to market. Um, just in terms of we've been you know we haven't been around for that long. It took us uh, less than. Uh, three years to launch our product, but then since that point, our revenue has uh, has really kind of increased really fast. Um, last year was 146 million, which more than doubled the, from the year before. We're now in um, uh, over 90 percent of top research institutions, over 90 percent of big pharma companies. So, in terms of having just having a fundamentally big impact on the world and accelerating the pace of research. I think this is definitely the way to go. Yeah. Well, I wonder if we could just spend a few more minutes on the um, – actually, before the, we do that, let me let me talk just another minute about the market. Then I want to go back to the motivations. But so the market, you are basically selling to research labs at this point. And are those somewhat evenly divided between uh, government, university, and pharma company – commercial labs, or are they still mostly uh, government and university labs? Yeah, I would say they're mostly academic labs. Yeah. With uh, pharma being, pharma biotech being a minority, but a kind of a fast increasing segment. Yeah. So if I look, I, I you know, I don't know what I can trust, what they read in the internet, but it, you're at least a newly minted unicorn in terms of, of market value and so worth more than a billion dollars is is that can that valuation be justified based on selling primarily to a research market or are investors looking ahead and saying there's some more mainstream commercial application that can come out of this that this business can go after uh so it's really it's the first uh because our business Certainly, right now is very much focused on research, and the amount of growth we had of us is is pretty uh, pretty tremendous. We are not seeing any ceiling. I mean, the, the research tools market is actually 
it tends to be kind of underrated. It's uh, pretty significant. It's over you know, fifty billion dollars, depending how you look at it. So there's lots of uh, lots of room for us to grow just within this area mm-hmm. for a long time. Um, now, of course, there's all kinds of potential um, use cases down the road that uh, just from how people are using it feels like might come at us sooner rather than later. And you kind of uh, in terms of just impacting uh, patient care and um, uh, and being used within. So within when you say you're in 90% of research labs, that means there is a machine in those labs, but you're still ramping both in terms of the volume going through that machine. And presumably some of these labs are going to need multiple machines. So there's still a growth story, even within academic uh, research. Yeah, yeah. So just to, to clarify that this is uh, 90% of top research labs. There was sort of, uh, you know, there's a, there's a report uh, published by Nature about the top uh, academic places, and we're in the ni- over 90% of those. The actual number of bio- biology labs, we're probably, biological labs could in principle use this. We're probably at um, 1%. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so there's tons of room to grow. And as you said, yes, there's definitely room to grow in terms of both instrument placements and the amount of consumable um, annuity that goes along with it. All right, Serge. So, so we, I'm lucky enough to get to spend the full hour with you, but we are going to take a break and then we're going to come back. And so I just want to remind our listeners, I'm Carl Ulrich. I'm Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation. And I'm speaking this hour with Serge Soxanoff, who's the founder and CEO of 10X Genomics, a revolutionary startup that's uh, that's changing the way we understand biology at the cellular level. Stay with us as we continue our conversation after the short break. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Carl Ulrich. I'm Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton, and I'm continuing my conversation this hour with Serge Soxanoff, who's the founder and CEO of 10X Genomics. Serge, so I want to go back to the origin story. So I'm still just blown away by how complex this all is. And I wonder if you can go back and tell us a little bit more about what you were doing, uh, how how you got this vision for for this new company, and what pieces you already had in place versus what things you had to go put together in order to go make this happen. Yeah. So my <clears throat> the story in some so my background personally is in computational biology, kind of which is lives on the data analysis dry side of the world, uh, kind of using computers to process biological data and understand biology. Now, I was, um, my, um, kind of my journey from my PhD was to 23andMe, which was, uh, you know, the first company where the first ones to analyze human genomes, uh, to, to a company, um, hardware company, hardware chemistry company called Quantalife, which is where I met my co-founders. Um, and, um, and kind of the story there was that uh, we built uh, the world's most precise DNA counter, the company, and got acquired by a larger company. And then, um, and then we, um, you know, we left after, after a certain amount. And I got together with uh, Ben Heinsohn, who's my co-founder at 10X, and he was. We work really closely together at the at the other company at Quantalife. He's a chemist. He was a founder there as well. And um, we we had this really incredibly productive relationship, coming from very different backgrounds, but being able to kind of work together and really do things where. The kinds of things that Ben could do felt like magic to me, and sometimes he would ask me questions about things that I could do that he wasn't sure were possible. And that was the initial really kind of impetus. We got together in the middle of 2012 in San, like in San Francisco coffee shop, uh, kind of talking about ideas and what we should do uh, next and whether we should work together. And I was very um, kind of keenly aware of some problems in biology that needed solving, um, going back, to some of those back going back to 23andMe days, some of those more recent, and especially around the single cell biology world, where uh, what I found is when you go um, to cancer conferences and other conferences, there was the uh, there was this intense need when you look at sort of what biologists were working on to understand what's going on at the cell level, but the world of genomics, kind of genome analysis and uh, um, and DNA sequencing, was very much kind of not focused there. And so we had uh, we had the sense that 
the world has to move uh, in that direction. And we wanted to build, and we also had the sense that kind of combining our skills, we could do some good stuff for the world. So let me just, um, and, I just yeah. want to pause because this is all such deep and complex stuff. I want to make sure our listeners are, are with us here. So the big insight was if you look at 23andMe, your, your penultimate company, and what much of what was happening in genomics, it looks at the genome uh, as, as a single string, essentially undifferentiated by cell. And your big idea was we have to be able, we have to build an instrument that lets us look at gene expression at the cellular level. That's a huge unsolved problem in biology. Was that your was that the epiphany? Was that the big insight you started with? Well, so the interesting thing is actually that was one of several uh, big areas that we saw needed addressing, and we realized that to address all of them actually required a common set of technology advances. Mm. And this idea that I was talking about earlier, being able to separate out cells into their own individual reactions in that kind of massively parallel fashion, to be able to run thousands to hundreds of thousands to millions of reactions in parallel was kind of a core set of capabilities that could be applied to many fundamental problems in biology. I see. So it wasn't even the analysis per se. It was literally almost the mechanical aspects, fluid mechanical aspects of separating cells that was the enabling technology. And being, that's that's right. And then being able to run kind of reactions in parallel, yeah. being able to keep track of them yeah. on this weird, like massive scale. But this was at best a hunch, right? Because mm -hmm. no one was doing this. So how did you validate that if we build it, they will come? Um, really good question. And uh, the, the fact is that you're never sure. Right. Uh, we had, uh, I mean, and, and then the fact is you don't know. Like until you get to market, you, you do not know. What gave us confidence is that this general direction was really fertile in applications. And not just any applications, but in fundamentally enabling applications. And that's mm -hmm. one of the things we always question ourselves when we're thinking about building a new product. Does this feel like a fundamental capability that could advance life sciences in an exponential, non-incremental way? Mm -hmm. And these, all these areas felt that way. But again, there's no predicate. There's not like we could point to, hey, this product is going to be twice as good as this other product, and therefore we expect this market to be like a certain size. Uh, in fact, uh, the single cell project, we, we started working on it. This was our second product line, and we started working on it in um, sort of very early 2015 or so, or around 2014. And our initial market analyses uh, that we, we had were just tiny. Yeah. Um, because there's, again, there's no predicate. And if you're going by trying to triangulate what, people, what the world was doing back then, uh, it, it seemed really small. Um, and but turns out this this ended up being huge. And did a couple of other things that you know we've launched uh, since then. So um, yeah, so I think that it is a fundamental sense that it, there is a fertile set of applications and product lines, and we aren't 100% confident in any given one. Uh, but we do feel like this will be this will give us a great position to have some breakthrough blockbuster products. Yeah. So I, I got to now ask you about the financing of that dream, because it, I, I don't know if Crunchbase is to be believed, but it looks like you raised around $5 million in seed capital, which seems like a trivial amount of money relative to the task at hand. And I wonder, A, who would give you that money to go off on this crazy moonshot? And then secondly, what can you possibly get done with $5 million against this goal? Um, but so uh, that initial money was a little less than five, but uh, <laughs> it was just the first step, right? We ended up raising a lot more. Well, you raised, uh, if I read it right, like a quarter of a billion dollars by the time, you know, uh, uh, through 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 this year, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. About 240 something. Yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, so the first one, yeah, it was interesting. That was uh, like uh, maybe the most stressful fundraise I've ever had. <laughs> that yeah. was the first one. 
um, where, I mean, literally it was, uh, uh, there was actually three of us. The third, a third founder joined us, who was the microfluid mechanical engineer, mm-hmm. kind of creating this uh, very, like the initial, very close disciplinary team. And, you know, we had 10 slides <laughs> that we made, and uh, we showed, um, uh, we called up our previous investors uh, in a previous company, uh, Quantalife, and some of the friends um, that uh, kind of uh, people that we knew, like uh, like Ann Wojcicki from 23andMe, uh, who kind of knew generally what we kind of getting more on the team than anything yep. else. Um, and, uh, you know, we had, I remember, like, even the, the technology, we had a slide uh, that listed all the challenges we'd have to overcome. And one of the investors asked, so how are you going to do it? And we said, well, we don't know. That's why we need the money. Um, and uh, that that initial uh, chunk of uh, seed funding was really around figuring figuring out the right pieces of the technology. It wasn't around building the final product or anywhere near it. But it was really around kind of figuring out these proof of concept um, ideas and making, figuring out what kinds of components, making kind of some of the initial breakthroughs. So, so I, I'm super curious what kinds of breakthroughs you could do with that initial seed capital. So, were you ta- are you talking about things like uh, can we take cells in a in a solution and separate them into bubbles? Those kinds of experiments. Were that was that the kind of stuff you're working on? Um, that, that's part of it. So being able to separate them and actually being able to also deposit individual um, barcodes mm-hmm. at sufficient sort of properties, like sufficient concentration and diversity of those kinds of barcodes next to, at that point, we were actually working with single molecules, not cells. That was our first product was around single molecules. Mm-hmm. Um, and being able to do that in a way that then can be sequenced on a DNA sequencer. Uh, it's very kind of conceptually, it was able, you could kind of put the pieces together to produce um, a variant of a workflow that eventually will become a product. So it showed you the conceptual piece, A, like, like you said, you can separate out biological objects in their own droplets, and B, you could deposit barcodes uh, in each one at the sufficient numbers and diversity, and see you could run some biochemical reactions within them. Yeah. So what had you shown by the time you did, I guess it would have been the Series A, and how much was mm-hmm. that Series A? So the, the Series A was uh, $22 or so million, dollars, um, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, this was led by Brian Roberts from Ben Rock, um, and uh, uh, we had other kind of investors. And by that point, it was really showing some initial data, the fact that we could separate out individual molecules and generate barcode data that can go through the sequencer. Very raw kind of um, sort of experimental data, but it showed, it gave a sense that at least some of the parts would work. Uh, not all the parts, and in fact, we had to change a lot of things later, as it turned out. But there's sort of this initial experiment that you know remember very clearly towards the end of the summer of 2013 when we're actually able to generate this data, um, and it, again it pointed only to to the fact that some of the components were working, uh, some of the important components were working um, as we were hoping they would work. Yeah, you know, it, 22 million still isn't a lot of money, and I'm wondering. Uh, how, how big was the team at this point that's working on these problems? Uh, right when we raised our Series A, yeah, yeah, we're around ten people at that yeah. point. Yeah, so it's still a really, really small team. And then, and then, at what point did you have any kind of market validation? Uh, so we went. We started selling. Um, so there's kind of uh, there's a few different steps along the way. Our product, the first product, started coming together really towards the end of 2014. Mm-hmm. And we had some beta customers that were generating data, and we were really excited. So that gives you an idea. It's still not exactly a market uh, because you know you kind of self-select in some sense some people the people you're going to work with. Uh, we went commercial, started selling kind of full-on selling our uh, instruments and reagents in the middle of 2015, 
Uh, but to give you a perspective, this was about two weeks after we hired our first salesperson. Wow. So not very, <laughs> uh, but you're we, selling to people who are probably following what you're doing, begging you for an instrument because they want to write some papers, right? I mean, these are truly lead users, almost peers, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, to, to some extent, that made it uh, a lot more straightforward. In a sense, there's some of these key places like Stanford, in fact, was their first, very first yeah. placement. Um, uh, yeah, part of the issue that we faced, we were actually super stealth for the first ah. two and a half years. So it wasn't until the beginning of 2015 that we actually announced ourselves to the world. Um, so it's not, we didn't have a whole lot of time to build up our customer pipeline. Um, but still, in a, bio, in a biotech world, to be launching a commercial, any commercial product, three, four years after formation is really remarkable. And so that's, I mean, that's an amazing testament to what you were able to do. Yeah, it is. It, it was a pretty, I mean, and we had this kind of mindset. We wanted, we kept driving and we moved really fast to get to that point. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, um, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Carl Ulrich, and I'm speaking with Serge Soxanoff, who's the founder and CEO of 10X Genomics. All right. So uh, at that point, 2015, you have a little bit of commercial validation. Did that change the fundraising landscape substantially, or was it fairly straightforward all along? Um, so, <laughs> yeah, no, that's, uh, that's an interesting question, because we went to fundraise do a fundraiser our Series C mm-hmm. uh, towards the end of uh, 20, uh, 2015. And there was a kind of an interesting confluence of events where the, the biotech market up to that point was going up, up, and up, and up. And all of a sudden, just as we went to start meeting with investors, it cratered. Oh. Uh, and uh, I remember going to this J.P. Morgan conference. J.P. Morgan is the big healthcare conference right. that happened here in San Francisco. And this is... Uh, I guess this was 2016 at that point, January 2016. And the, the, the mood was just totally gloomy. Uh, everyone was losing money and no one wanted to do anything. Uh, but we were fortunate. I, I mean, I guess going back to your point that there was a testament to the market, we uh, closed their Series C early in 2016. But there was that was actually from the, just the sentiment and investor intensity of in, industrial interest. That was probably, that one was the toughest uh, uh, to do. And I think that just had to do with the timing of globally macroeconomic. Yeah, and then by the time the Series D, which was just a few months ago, three months ago, you you had impressive revenue at that point. So that yeah, presumably no, was point. straightforward. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This this was uh, this was absolutely a cakewalk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I got. I, I bet this will not be the first time you've been asked this question, but I got to ask you. So um, was the crash and burn of Theranos? Uh, a factor for you guys? I mean, I know it's only a vague analogy, but you, there was another company with espresso sized machines putting cartridges uh, <laughs> that was not very stealthy. And I wonder if you could just reflect on what that did to the industry and, and whether you felt repercussions. You know, that's interesting. Uh, you know, the, yeah, the question had come up before. Um, I, and I can't say that it really affected us because the interesting thing is. Theranos never really fundraised from any uh, healthcare investors, and not really even from like the deep tech sort of tech side investors either. Um, so there wasn't much like so the set of people who invested in us and who would have considered investing in Theranos is like those are two very distinct right. sets. Um, and so, I mean, in many ways, we're very. Like we're like once you go below sort of the superficial similarity, like we're very very different. Um, and there's really, you know, we 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 showed all of our science and our technology to the investors. There was no, um, there, we weren't holding it back. And then once we actually got to market, then papers, the publications from our customers started coming in a pretty massive torrent. At this point, we have you know close to 400 papers. Um, wow. Very, yeah, um, pretty different. Um, story. Yeah, no, it is a different story, but I, I I couldn't resist. I mean, that that was a fascinating story, and I guess uh, probably many lessons. But it, uh, not sure how much you extract from outright fraud, right? I mean, that's that's sort of an exceptional was an exceptional situation in many ways. Um, all right, so I, I want to just change gears a little bit and ask you to reflect on 
your own career path. I mean, you've been lucky to have been around some pretty interesting, exciting companies, 23andMe um, in particular, as, one, as the founding architect of that, of that business, which was really revolutionary. And I wonder if you can just reflect on your own career path. You were uh, you majored in math, and then you did a PhD in bioinformatics. Did you see yourself as a 22 year old as being a CEO of a of a unicorn? Um, so I was never the CEO thing is, is kind of very different. I'm not sure if I ever thought in those terms. What I did uh, realize, and this is sometime mid, midway through college, that I wanted to build companies. My parents initially wanted me to be pre-med, and at some point I realized I was just—I realized I didn't want to go. There was like the idea of knowing for the next 30 years what I was going to do was just terrifying to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was uh, kind of trying to figure out what was, what was really kind of resonating with me. And I remember going on this uh, panel in college. It was actually an entrepreneurship panel um, where my undergrad advisor, the person whose lab I was working, on, happened to be on this panel, and that's why I went. And uh, it was really interesting to see. It was a bunch of founders, like several from very different kinds of companies, um, talking. There was a I remember the specific question someone asked um, from the audience, like, "Well, you guys say that like this is really great and this is really interesting, but how much um, uh, how much work ba- work life balance do you have? Do you have time for any other interests? And um, uh, like, is, isn't that a huge trade off?" And you know, one of the people started uh, kind of answering that question. And then um, the professor that I worked in, he, is, he he kind of has this sort of cutting manner. He kind of cut in and said, well, just the fact that you're asking that question probably means you're uh, not suited to be an entrepreneur. Whoa. <laughs> and, it's, uh, and again, uh, this is the way that he kind of operated, but it's kind of interesting. Uh, that answer actually really appealed to me <laughs> because it, showed, it resonated to this sort of sense of all-encompassing purpose um, that you kind of, you're trying to build something of significance and you commit yourself to that goal fully. Uh, it really resonated with me. And so I kind of, from that point of involved, it was, it was clear to me that I wanted to be involved in building companies um, and coming out. And that's why, quite honestly, I moved out to California. I wanted to be in the life sciences because I felt like this is where the greatest opportunity from opportunities for making an impact are going to be over the coming decades. Um, and um, Stanford was a natural place, right? This is where um, things were happening back then, and uh, as you know, California turned out <laughs> just about everything I sort of thought it would be. Yeah. So I got to circle back on that. And now, I mean, you probably were a child prodigy, but you graduated from college 20 years ago next month. So you've had some time, a couple decades to reflect on on the choices you made. And uh, do you still feel that way about work life? Or have you found a, 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 a rhythm that you think is sustainable for your working career? You know, still trying to figure it out. Uh, and the question of sustainability is actually really, really important and interesting because you start out, I'm just reflecting back, I've been through the series of startups, and you don't think about that at all when you're starting a company because you just you need to kind of born something into existence. And you'll kind of feel like, well, I'll sleep later, right? right. Um, and uh, but it, this is something I've been thinking about over the course of last couple of years. As it's clear that 10x has become, uh, you know, it has been born, right? right. It is a self-sustaining company, and we have like enormous plans uh, ahead of us. And it feels like we're just at the beginning. And I see that like there's so much to do, and it has to be. That means I have to. It has to be sustainable. So I don't have a short like an answer, and just like I can tell you that I am. This is something that I'm working on, and you know, trying to figure out for myself. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the beautiful thing about it is that you know life is long. You have different phases. You can come in and out of it, and it and you know you're getting to experience the growth you know, the birth and growth of a company. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it seems like amazing life experience if it's sustainable. I suppose that's the key question. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so uh, I want to, I want to change gears just a little bit. This may be our last topic, but let me just uh, turn to it, which is, I wonder if we could just talk for a minute about w- w- return to where we started, which was the promise of biology and of genomics in society. So I wonder if you can just give us a little vision of what we can look forward to in society. What kinds of improvements in human health, quality of life, do you think might be possible uh, in the future? Uh, yeah, it's actually hard to imagine what things 
would not be possible almost. Um, I, so, I mean, the, the most natural thing is where I feel like a greatest sense of urgency. There's lots of like horrible diseases out there that uh, in, in our lifetime can be addressed. Uh, cancer, which is a very complex disease of which we understand very little relative to how much there is to understand. But if you fast kind of move the clock forward by a couple of decades, you sort of feel like, well, we should be able to address most of cancer, uh, find cures or find enough early detection capabilities that it becomes uh, essentially a non-issue. I think we can. We have the means of uh, addressing just about every infectious disease. Um, disease of old age, you know, have been trying to fight uh, Alzheimer's and uh, Parkinson's, and um, and right now the sort of the biology of those diseases is a complete black box. We still we're kind of trying these therapies, and we keep coming up short. And but it is, I mean, I fundamentally see these as solvable problems. Again, it's going to take a couple of decades to get there, but that's where I feel the greatest greatest urgency. Uh, because the sooner, the kind of the more we delay, the more people ultimately are going to uh, to die, and then the, the faster we move, the more people are going to be um, whose lives are going to be saved. And I think fundamentally, that's that's the thing that drives me, drives the sense of urgency uh, there. Uh, what I envision is, you know, in some sense, the world free of disease and people living healthy uh, lives uh, for uh, for for a long time. Um, you know, biology can be applied in all kinds of other ways, uh, whether it's improving uh, food supply, supplying clean energy, all kinds of things. But I would say the the biggest motivator for me is just is advancing human health. Yeah. So I uh, we currently have an unrelenting pursuit of that, and I totally agree with you that probably the single best use of resources in society is to alleviate suffering. So I get that. But do you have any concerns in a minute or so <laughs> that I give you the answer to this about what happens if we extend longevity uh, ten years? Doesn't isn't that catastrophic for society? Um, well, I don't know. Maybe this is, this might be controversial, but I think uh, <laughs> I actually don't think it would be catastrophic. Um, you would have people with lots of experience who are able to lead, uh, you know, healthier and more productive lives. I think that would be a great thing. I think the world would benefit um, tremendously. I'm not going to speculate on, you know, on the implications of, you know, doubling the life uh, uh, sort of span. That's a whole other sort of question. But improving and giving, you know, making people healthy and productive further into old age, I think that that'd be awesome. I mean, the argument, I suppose, would be they get really wise in those last 10 years, so they do, they do fewer stupid things, and maybe that's a net positive for society. <laughs> I guess I tend to be an optimist on the long time scale, so yes. <laughs> yeah, you're actually one of the most optimistic people I've met. It's an incredible story and so inspiring. So we're actually uh, out of time, but this has been a fascinating interview. I've learned so much. So Serge, thanks so much for making the time and for joining the show. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. For more information, you can check out 10xgenomics.com. That's the numeral 10xgenomics.com. Coming up, Phil Valtero will join me to talk about Fuelster Technologies, an on-demand fuel delivery application. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation, and you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 